Hi, this is John Cleary in New Orleans, Louisiana, and you're listening to Talking Blues. the new album coming along? It's going coming along very well, thank you. Yes, it's at a preliminary state. Um, <clears throat> it's, um, I'm working on the rhythm tracks at the moment, the basic foundations, before we start doing the, the overdubs. How do you come to the decision that now is the time to do the next album? Well, every album has its cycle. You know, it takes a long time to make. And then the release happens and then there's a an imperative to go out and tour behind it while it's still fresh and sell as many copies as possible and make as big of a splash as possible. And then um, and then you're out on the road, you know. So um, that process can be like a two or three year cycle. And uh, the last record came out, I can't remember when it came out, but a couple of years ago. So we're kind of due for one, but really the you know as as, that, as it dawned on everybody that this was something that the, the lockdown was going to be a long term prospect. I called the fellas in the band and said, "Look, none of us have got any money, none of us have any gigs, none of us have any tours. We're all here, so let's just get together when it's safe to do so and um, and just put some concentrate on making some music." So everybody was very enthusiastic because I think it's good to have. Everyone felt it was good to have something to, to focus on. So um, the <clears throat> you know the six foot distancing restrictions kind of uh, make it hard for a bunch of musicians to get tight in a studio and play music. So we started off with just recording drums, and then when things started to ease up a bit, um, we tried it out and got everybody in. So we had a couple of days where we tracked a bunch of songs. Or tried some stuff out, and then uh, and then we had to kind of ease up again. So <clears throat> so we, the timing was quite good, really. I've got a bunch of raw material that I've got to go through now and decide which is which piece, which of the tunes we recorded are keepers, which require more work, which songs I can work on with just the drum tracks and start building those up. Some of the songs are, are complete, some of them are in a stage of completion that gives me some options, you know, as far as verse, verses, choruses, the arrangement details. So it's really a matter of building the foundations and getting the foundation stronger. Once the foundations are strong, it's like building a house, you know. Right. Uh, once the foundations are there, the right number of bars in the introduction, the sequence of verses, choruses, breakdowns, bridges, uh, the dynamics, the crescendos, the diminuendos... Yes, does the solo have enough time to really get into a groove? Does the solo, do the drums and bass build and give the solo some support in uh, and and building? <clears throat> are there enough choruses of the vamp to really say? Are there too many choruses? Does it need to be shorter? What's the length of the song? Is it five and a half minutes or two and a half minutes? I had one song that came in under two minutes, which is kind of old style. <laughs> And I thought, well, this is too short. It needs to be longer. And so so I then had to start editing and, and um, rebuilding it so that it was at least four minutes. And then having done that, I felt, no, that doesn't serve the song. The song is, is the song form was right to start with. It's just, it's just a short song. So I went back. But that took two days of editing and constructing and trying things out. So it's a long, 
process. It's the same process an artist would go to brocking out the canvas or a novelist would go to in plotting how the story develops over the course of 12 chapters or whatever, you know. So, um, yeah, it's the, it's the nuts and bolts of making a record. But interesting. I, I wonder, is it a process you enjoy? Yeah, I really do enjoy it, yeah. And it's, you know, it's something you get better at the more you do it. And it's not an exact science, but um, <clears throat> there are... There are the fundamental rule that applies is that um, it has to move, the song has to move at a pace, and it ideally wants to stop at a point where you're, the listener still wants more. It's the same principle that you employ on the on a gig, really, when, it, when it's time to end a show. You always end, the old showbiz cliche, leave them wanting more. <laughs> you know? So I liked records when I was a kid, that when I got to the end of the record, I just wanted to put it back to the beginning because I still wasn't, you know, I still wanted more. So that's a, that's a, that's a good idea. So, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a science in pop songs, basically. Right, but I mean, I, I don't know if this is a silly question, but, and I know you've had a lot of albums, you've had a lot of success with the albums, how do you learn that process? I mean, how, how do you think you've come to the point where today you, you know what works and what doesn't? Or do you? Okay, well, you learn through a process of trial and error. And there's been a lot of trial over the years and a great deal of error. But um, So give me an example of an error that you thought, oh, maybe I could have done that better. Um, trying to think of a particular song example off the top of my head and I can't really I can't okay, think of anything but you, but you know when you have an introduction of a song the introduction should be enough to to um, make a bold statement um, but get you to the get you to the song pretty quickly and it should contain a catchy motif I mean a lot of pop songs work uh, <clears throat> um, on the same principles as nursery rhymes really nursery rhymes are simple melodies that stick in the head and they're enduring. That's why right. there are some nursery rhymes that mothers still sing to their children, um, and, and, the, and the melody themselves have been have been functioning in that role for over a hundred years. But the same thing with the best pop songs, you know, whether it's Alan Toussaint or Paul McCartney or Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something you employ. It doesn't mean it has to sound like a, a nursery rhyme, but it just has to have a um, some kind of motif that works well. Um, but really, when you're playing, a, writing a song, as I say, there's, your song consists of an introduction, um, verses, choruses, what they call a bridge section, right. um, where something new happens, um, and then a solo section, and then you can employ tricks like modulating, for example. So if you're playing in G... And you've got into the middle of the song and you feel like it needs a lift. You can go. I mean, these are ch- tricks that composers have used since, uh, you know, for the, in the European tradition for hundreds of years in classical music. Right. So you, you go from this, your ear's used to this, and it wants to go to here. And sometimes people would just do that, they'd just go up a half step. Uh, but other composers will gent- will make the, the will soften the transition by putting a chord in between. So they go. You can keep going. So 
There are lots of little tricks, you know. And you learn not to uh, not to linger on something too long because you don't want the ear, you don't want the listener to get bored. Right. So, um, so uh, you have to get through stuff quickly. And I think one mistake you make as a young writer and arranger is to land on something you really like and just uh, and be, you're quite proud of, and you, and you do it twice perhaps or three times <laughs> when one time is enough so as you mature you know to leave stuff out and just trust if it's good then um, then you only need to do it once or sometimes you need to do it twice sometimes a song works because you do something over and over again hey jude mm -hmm. i mean he went over the same thing over and over for six minutes and that, that was what that's what makes the song work right so every song is different really it depends on the lyrics the melody and the chords that you and the voicings that you use so, I know that you come from England. I know that you come from a very musical family. Tell me about yeah. how music, what music meant to you as you were growing up. Um, well, I, you know, I thought that everybody's um, uncles and parents, I just naturally assumed that everybody, everybody in other families played music. Right. Because uh, our family did when we all got together, all eventually uh, all the guitars would come out and they'd start singing and playing. And then um, going to friends' houses when I was little and say, not seeing any musical instruments around. <laughs> Thought, huh, that's interesting. Um, and a few moments as a kid where music just. I just, it was like the, I'd hear something and like the world stopped turning around me and the music just was like a warm embrace and I was just curious and like this sort of a puzzled expression thinking wow what's that and it might have been a chord progression in a song I can remember being at primary school so I must have been six or something when we had to sing hymns or whatever and just singing a harmony and everybody looking at me saying they were singing out of tune I was thinking it's a harmony. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know it was called a harmony, but it was. It seemed like it was. A, that made it sound better. But um, it was obvious to me that that was a good. So that wasn't taught to you. It just came to you. Yeah, I could just hear it. You just sang, sang something that went mm. along with what everyone else was doing. It sounded good, but everyone was sort of. Uh, I can remember suddenly feeling like I was the odd one out, and being very embarrassed. Um, yeah, just certain moments where the music just kind of just swallowed you up, and. Um, and I started trying to pick out tunes on my dad's guitar, but it was too big. It was just enormous. I was just, it was bigger than I was. But um, so he came back one day and he got me this small scale children's guitar. And that was fantastic because I could actually, it, could, it would rest on my lap and I could get my arm over the top. And, um, and I would just disappear up into my bedroom. And one day he just walked in as I was playing something and he was, looked really puzzled I was playing some tune that was a pop pit and he called my mum in and said come have a listen to this and they were both just um, puzzled and kind of amused and uh, and quite thrilled I think because they're music lovers but I was playing these I'd left him way behind and I'd have figured out all this stuff and they didn't even realize it I just happened to walk in when I was just sitting there playing something and I was probably about wow seven or you know six or seven or eight something like that so it was um, a lot of encouragement and I think, you know, it's the nature or nurture thing. I do think you have to have... You have to be born with a, with a brain that can process musical information. 
and then that has to be nurtured. So it's a combination of two, and I was just very lucky in that respect of both of those things very young, a lot of encouragement. Your Uncle John, I believe, mm -hmm. was a major influence on you. Still musically. is, yeah. Can you talk to me about him and how he influenced you? Um, yeah, well, he was an influence on me in not just musical ways, but music was a large part of it. And he was, my family's quite young. Um, so he's probably 15 years older than I am, um, which is a huge difference when you're 10 years old and your uncle's 25. Yeah. But he was um, a very, still is, very colourful character, much loved. Um the life and soul of any party. Um, good musician, good songwriter, great entertainer, um, but a very colourful character in our lives as children because he would be away a lot. He would go off travelling. Uh, he had the gypsy spirit, um, which comes from my mum's side and my dad's side too. But he would... Uh, I remember one time asking mum where he was and she said, I think he's living in a cave in the Sahara Desert, darling. <laughs> and he was. <laughs> he'd gone down to... He'd travelled overland and gone, ended up in Mauritania and was living in a, in a cave right there by the, where the Sahara meets the sea. Oh. And other times he'd... Then he'd suddenly just... He'd be gone for a couple of years and would suddenly turn up. And would, I remember one time he'd just... The door opened and he walked in and he was wearing a silly fake nose and a Groucho Marx <laughs> moustache with a pair of silly spectacles. It was just a funny bloke, you know. We all fell about, ah, it's Uncle John. But then one time he, we got a, he was gone and we got a postcard um, with a cotton ball attached to it from New Orleans. And he said, um, I've just arrived in New Orleans. And he said, this place is crazy. And, um, and it, that was it. He was in New Orleans. So I thought, wow, that's interesting. And then... Um, and then uh, we'd get these letters occasionally. We'd get a letter, and it would be written on a huge piece of paper in beautiful handwriting with little illustrations and stories. And these ones would come from New Orleans with stories about this guy, Professor Longhair, saying, you've got to hear this guy. It's an old, old black man that plays in the bar near me, plays the piano. It's, it's amazing. And um, So things like that. So, yeah, very evocative um, but he's just one uncle. I've got three uncles that are musicians, and they were all... My uncle Bruce was a was, uh, um, great, good musician, taught me to play mandolin, and I'd go and stay with him, and he had a great record collection. I got hip to, to all kinds of uh, interesting music through him, bluegrass music, Irish music, gospel quartets, and the blues, obviously, right. Clifton Chenier and Zydeco stuff. And then another uncle, his brother Steve, who's... Uh, uh, still a working gigging musicians in Germany right now. Um, and he played piano and guitar and slide guitar and mandolin, fiddle. And um, was a great singer. Um, and my dad played. And my mum had a lovely voice, so she didn't really ever sing in public. But my grandmother, my grandmother was a singer. And my... Oh, yes. Tell me about your grandmother and your grandfather's act. Well... They were in show yeah. business, correct? Um, semi, she was. I don't. She was never professional or anything, but she, everyone thought she had a gorgeous voice, and she'd be billed as Sweet Dolly Daydream. But my granddad, her husband, my mum's dad, 
was really good, apparently. I never saw him. He died when I was quite young, but I never saw him do his act. But he would uh, he was a gigging musician. He had his he would go off to the gig with his sheet music and for the band and he would sing and, and tap dance. He had a top hat and um silver top cane and was a really great tap dancer and a really good singer and great entertainer. Um and then my Did he not go by an interesting name? Yeah. Yeah, his stage name was Frank Neville and he was billed as the little fella with the educated feet. <laughs> I think and he would dance on a... Apparently he could dance on a tray of eggs without breaking them. God only knows how. Wow. <laughs> I've got no idea. But, yeah, he, apparently he, was do, he was good, apparently. He was really good. So was there ever uh, any doubt that you would become a musician? Not in my mind. At what point did you, dis- did you think, this is the path you want to go? Um, there was never a point. There was never a sort of moment where I sort of decided that's what I was going to do. Uh, I started so young that um, there was never any serious consideration of doing anything else. I was quite good at, at art, and so um, I was pretty useless at everything else. I mean, I regret it, really, but I didn't pay any attention at school because I was just thinking about music all the time. I, um, but I got... Uh, I went and st- I studied art... Um, and they all thought they wanted me to pursue that as a career that my art teachers did because I was making good progress in that but I sort of had a choice whether to to go to art college or go travelling so I thought I'd go travelling to New Orleans and then um, I guess in the back of my mind I thought if it didn't work out for whatever reason I could go to art college and pursue that Before we get to that when did the piano come into your life? Because you started with the guitar, right? Yeah yeah, my dad played guitar, and our house was where everyone would come back to after the pubs closed. They'd they'd all go, they'd all get play down at the pub. And this is just for fun. You mm-hmm. know, his background was skiffle bands. You know, it was the skiffle right. generation, and the skiffle thing was born out of um, New Orleans jazz. Right. So his generation, my mum and dad's generation, but that first generation in the early fifties that were digging New Orleans bands like Ken Collier and Chris Barber and Humphrey Littleton. Alex Welsh, and um, and part of that world was the skiffle thing because most if you couldn't play jazz, then you could get a guitar and learn three chords, and you're you're in business. You could play all the Lonnie Donegan and the, right. you know Rock Island and all the Lead Belly songs. So that's what they did. Really, they were all three chord merchants, just the basics, and they they take the guitars down to them, and his mates would all go turn up the pub and bring guitars along and have a session in the pub, and after the pub shut, they'd all come back to our house, and as a little kid, um, I'd be woken up by the sound of music in the front room and would stand outside listening until eventually they'd let me come in, and they'd allow me to stay up for a bit if I sang a song. So that was... uh, that's kind of how I got started. But it was all guitars. Right. But in my grandmother's house, there was a piano. And she lived in a small uh, house in a... In a well, in England, they call it a council estate. It's like a housing project, um, which they'd moved out to after the war. A lot of people moved out of London after the war because of the bombing. Right. Um, and 
half of her front room was taken up by this piano, and they'd carried the piano with them when they lived in London, in um, Labrook Grove. The piano would take, they had two whole family in two rooms, and the piano took up half of one of the rooms. But she'd got the piano when she was a teenager. They didn't have any money, but she tragically, tragically she lost her arm in a in an industrial accident, she worked at a baker's and her arm was chopped off in a bread slicing machine. Wow. And she was given a hundred pounds compensation, which in the 1930s was a fortune. Um, and she spent, uh, you know, they didn't have any money, so there's all sorts of stuff they needed, but she kept half of the money for a piano. She wanted a piano, even though she only, she couldn't play it, she only had one hand. But she insisted, they bought a baby grand piano. And um, my mum and my uncles remember people, you know, good musicians coming around to play it at parties. And it was this, you know, it was kind of a rare thing to have a nice piano in those days in that rough part of London, mm -hmm. um, I suppose. But when I was very young, she gave it to my mum and dad. And I can remember it was a big kerfuffle trying to move it from her house into the back of a van and drive it all the way down to the countryside where my mum and dad had moved 50 miles away. But then we had a piano at home and it was just part of the furniture. And as little kids, we'd drape sheets over it and hide underneath it. And it was just a toy, you know. I bet we'd, I'd put the lid up and plonk away and not really knowing. But and gradually, as I started to learn the guitar, um, I would sometimes sit there and play a guitar chord and try and figure out what the notes were. And then when I got to about uh, 11 years old, I guess I was writing songs on it. Pretty basic. But then I, you know, around when I started developing, when I heard New Orleans piano, I thought that just set off all kinds of sparks. And so I just migrated from the piano from the guitar to the piano and when I moved to New Orleans as a teenager um, I didn't take a guitar with me I couldn't take a guitar with me um, but the house that I moved into had a nice old upright piano that had been pulled out of a local bar room and so I really landed on my feet and I was hearing piano music in New Orleans all the time though there was a piano at the local bar the Maple Leaf right. and so I would spend all my time um, I'd spend all my money buying old records from Jim Russell's record shop on Magazine Street. And then um, would, in my spare time, I would just play and play and play and play. And that's really, you know, when I got to New Orleans, by that point, I was really using the, the piano as an instrument for music. So everything was learned by ear? Yeah. Yeah, I had, did have... I think I had two piano lessons when I was at school. My folks thought I should... Well, first of all, they thought I should probably have guitar lessons. Um, but the guitar teacher would, would stop and ask me to show him how I was doing things on the guitar that he couldn't play. So I ended up teaching him, not teaching him, but most of the lessons was me showing him, trying to show him how to play some blues licks, which he couldn't really get his head around. So I thought, well, if he can't play it, there's no point in doing it, it's pointless. And the piano lessons... Uh, I had no interest in wanting to read music. I was quite obstinate, as far as it seemed to me in my, in my youthful naivety that the blues, what I liked, wasn't music that was written down. Right. And the stuff that they wanted to teach you in music lessons was not stuff I liked. I just didn't like it. Um, and so I was a very poor student. Um, I would have been better off with some different teachers, really, but, you know, that's the way it was. So they gave, they thought I should have piano lessons, so I sort of 
begrudgingly went to a couple of piano lessons and was I found it very hard to focus and and because I could already play by that point right and, and playing this sort of stupid nursery rhyme kind of stuff and <laughs> trying to read the dots on the page just was not anywhere close to what I wanted to do I could already do I was already on my way but I did I was kind of had a good ear so I would memorize he'd we'd put a piece of music up and he'd play it and we'd, I'd memorize it and I'd have homework to go home and learn it and come back the next day and I'd play it back to him but he knew I wasn't I was playing it <laughs> I was actually playing it but he knew I wasn't I was pretending to read the music but he busted me because I didn't turn the page over I was still <laughs> pretending like I was reading but playing the part from memory by ear and um and it was, I had a few lessons and he said this you know there's this there's not there's kind of an exam where you're supposed to practice a piece and play it in front of some examiners and i said well how about this why don't i really why don't you just let me write something and i'll make something out that'd be better wouldn't it and he said well it's not very conventional but um I suppose I think he'd pretty much given up on me at this point, so it didn't make much difference. So I made, so I wrote a like a ten-minute piece of music and played that, um, and passed with flying colours. But that confirmed to me that there was no point in doing the lessons. I could do that anyway. Can so. I can I ask what kind of piece would you have written back then? Is it? Can you describe that? Is that an easy thing to describe? No, I can't remember what it was. Can't remember. It was probably something like. guessing it was probably something like that something fairly basic but but i yeah so anyway when late later on when i started getting hired for sessions and stuff i felt stupid because i because i didn't know how to read a chart and i was having trouble when i was writing songs not knowing how to write them down or try, trying to consign everything to memory is really hard right and so some musicians i was playing with patiently showed me how to write out chord charts and when there was a real reason for for learning stuff i learned how to do it so i'm pretty adept at that sort of stuff now i'm not a great reader and you don't really need to be with my kind of stuff you know i can't imagine learning new orleans piano is an easy thing to do it by ear but it, it wasn't oh, difficult yeah. for that's you. how everybody that's how everybody invented it learned it yeah i guess that's go to true. school i mean you know the, the exception was james booker generally speaking seems to me you if you learn by ear or you learn um academically and when you're taught if you start young and you go down the academic route you're trained uh and your young formative musical mind is molded in certain shapes and certain directions which then are in they stay with you for the rest of your life and you can never get out of that mm. and if you do go down that route then it's very unlikely you're going to be able to play the kind of stuff I play the music I like with any uh any real credibility and so um so I'm really glad I met Louis Armstrong and they said to him do you read music and he said yes but not enough to spoil the music <laughs> and uh, not enough to get in, not enough to get in the way so I think you know for communicating with other musicians it's good to uh that's not to say you should be ignorant about the the, the language right. of music i i have i div i taught myself a very thorough understanding of harmony and and the, and 
the, the laws of music. I just, no one ever told me what the names of the words were. At one point, I turned, when I was little, I turned on a t music, turned on the television, and it was um, a thing in England, used to have called the Open University, and it was a, a music tuition for, for university students. But this is when I was about 10 or 11. And they were talking about dominant and subdominant chords. And I thought, ah, that makes perfect sense because they really, d d dominant chords really are dominant. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. They dominate the chord. And the subdominant is on the other side of the, the tonic, the root chord. And it is subdominant. That was the name that was given that was per made perfect sense to me. So um, later on, I learnt the sort of the nomenclature. But um, I already knew the theory because I taught it to myself because it's an exercise in logic. Right. And if that's all you're thinking about when you're young, you don't have anything else to think about. It's a, it's a great way to, it's like mathematics, really. I'm not that I was ever a great mathematics student, but no, it's purely an exercise in logic. If this uh, does this, if this is to this, sorry, I'll put it the other way around. This is to this, well, this is to this. So therefore, this must be to that. Well, that is to that. And then you then you've discovered the cycle of fourths. Right. And I can remember when I first time I discovered on a guitar the cycle of fourths. I it was like the most it was like a, a mystic revelation. Um it my I stood so my head spun because <laughs> I'd just figured out I'd now got the, the, the holistic picture of all the chords. And I ran out into the garden and my dad was mowing the lawn. I ran out of my little guitar. I said, Dad, Dad, Dad. He said, well, you must have thought something terrible had happened because he turned the lawnmower off. I said, what, what, what? And I said, look, if you go to this one, you go to D, and then you go to A, and then you go to E, and then you go to B, and then you go here, F sharp, and then you go that, and you come back, and you're at D again. <laughs> and he looks at me and goes, oh, go away. Look, I'm trying to mow the lawn. <laughs> I just, it was the most incredible thing for me. That was the key. And then at that point, I was off to the races. So it's... um. So I understand it all, I figured it all out, but without at the time really knowing what the, what the as I say, the, the names, the, the, the labelling of what these things are. But I, I found that out later on. So the fact that you wound up in New Orleans, how much of that has to do with the Uncle John writing to your family when he was there? Well, a great deal, really, because um, he went back, he was in New Orleans for a couple of years, and then he went back, he loved it so much. I mean, he would tell great stories about all the places he'd been. But New Orleans, to me, as someone that was really into the music, was special. And I go and stay with him, and he had all these records that he brought back. He loved his records. And in his, he was, a, he, when he came back, he got a job as a groundsman on Moore Park Golf Course. And his apartment that they gave him that came with the job was built into his Gothic gatehouse with gargoyles and <laughs> it looked like something from a Titus Grown novel um, or some an old Hammer horror film Hammer horror film set just really wild <laughs> and you'd walk in, you'd open the door and there were guitars everywhere and then just piles of records and his oil paintings he was a very talented um, artist so a very bohemian world to step into and um, and I'd go and stay with him, and it, it was just music, 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 and New Orleans music. Not just New Orleans music. He loved other stuff too, but um, I got to hear great records that um, you, no one else, a lot of people, you wouldn't have been able to find them. I mean, you couldn't buy those records. You couldn't buy... The only place you could buy those records was 
in this old record store in New Orleans, a couple of record shops in New Orleans, but one called Jim Russell's. Um, and this is before anyone knew who Professor Longhair was. There were no Professor Longhair LPs. Right. Um, everyone knew Fats Domino. Huey Piano Smith, I guess, if you were really deeply into it, you would have known who he was. But I'm just getting, he was playing me Jive and Gene and the Jokers, Clarence Henry, um, Clifton Chenier, Snooks Eaglin, um, all kinds of great stuff. And he loved the fact, I think, that I was really, really digging it and so took great pleasure in, in feeding me information. And so, of course, every song came with a story. He's a great raconteur. And um, there were so many. New Orleans, it just sounded like the most incredible place. Um, and I just decided, you know, when I grow up, I want to go and be a musician and live in New Orleans. So that's what I did. So I wonder so, how, when you finally got there, and I understand that, is it true that you directly from the airport went to the Maple Leaf Bar? Is that correct? Yeah, because um, I'd got a, well, me and my mates at school, we were always hatching plans to go off on travel adventures, and we knew we were never going to do it, but it always just was fun. We had ideas to rent a gypsy caravan and go off travelling around Ireland, <laughs> and then rent to see if we could rent a van, drive to North Africa. And it was all, I mean, we were like 15 years, didn't even have a driver's licence. It was just absurd. But, um,. He called me one night and said, hey, there's this... Uh, we talked about, you know, one new idea, the idea of going to New Orleans was always, always crop up, you know. Um, but he called me and said, a friend of mine just told me about this new company called DHL, which is a courier company right. that will actually give you a free ticket to America if you let them use all your baggage space because uh, it's cheaper for them to buy you a ticket and use your allocated luggage space than it is to actually buy commercial space in the hold. It's a clever thing they've discovered. <laughs> but you have to be free to go when, you know, when there's a flight when they need you. And travel so, very lightly. Yeah, you can only take one piece of hand luggage. Right. <clears throat> That's why I couldn't take a guitar with me. I didn't go anywhere without a guitar. The idea of leaving without a guitar was weird. But... um Anyway, it was just a kind of, it was like just another crazy idea. But there was a phone number and I rang them up and they said, well, come get, have you got a passport? And I said, yeah. I said, well, just bring your passport in and then if there's a flight to New Orleans, that's where you want to go, uh, we'll give you a call. And, uh, and it didn't seem like it was going to happen, but I just did it. And then I got a call. Uh, I said, yeah, I'm going. And the week before, I... Um, was at one of my uncle's gigs. He had a band called JJ and the Flyers. They were playing at a pub called the Pegasus in Stoke Newington in uh, North London. And I was talking to a friend of the family, and she said, I hear you're going to New, or to New Orleans next week. That's exciting. I said, yeah. And she said, what are you going to do when you get there? I said, I don't know. She said, oh, where, where are you going to stay? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, how much money have you got? I said, I've saved up about £100. I said, oh, my God. She said, well, my sister is actually in New Orleans right now. She's been travelling through the States, and she's in New Orleans now, and she's actually, she loves it, and she says it's fantastic. But she's got a job at, at a bar. Hold on, she reached into a handbag and pulled out a matchbox with the Maple Leaf Bar on the phone number, 866-9359. And she said, she, you'd 
you should probably take call her when you get there because if you haven't got you need you're gonna need somewhere to stay at least on your first night until you find something out so i said oh, okay thanks and um put it in my pocket and i was 17 years old you know or 18 years old you just think you're you don't think. I was incredibly naive. I was just going to New Orleans and just assumed that somehow everything would be all right. And had I not had that matchbox, my life, the course of my life would have been completely different. I, so I did. I got to the airport, very freaked. All of a sudden, like the reality dawned on me. It's like I don't know anybody <laughs> and I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. And I got into a taxi and said, can you take me to the Maple Leaf Bar on Oak Street? And so I went straight to the Maple Leaf Bar, and that was it. That's crazy. And you still play there, right? Oh, yeah, it's my favorite bar. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's a wild story. So based on the stories that your uncle told you about New Orleans and based on the music that you, you heard, um, mm -hmm. what was being there like for you? Was it what you expected? I didn't know what to expect. Uh, all I'd heard were stories and about a, a, a month before I went out there, there was, a, a, there was an article in one of the magazine supplements for the Times newspaper, one of the newspapers that my dad had bought and I was just coming through it and there was a thing about New Orleans and I looked and saw some pictures of... Uh, it was a photograph of the old absinthe bar on Bourbon Street, right. and it just looked gorgeous. So I had a vague idea. My aunt had gone out and stayed, and a couple of his friends had gone out and stayed and um, come back. So New Orleans was always uh, something that was talked about a lot, and I saw a few family you know, photographs of New Orleans. So I knew it was hot. I had an idea of, sort of colonial architecture. I didn't really know much else about it, Mississippi River. Um, so, no. Did you know about the heat? Yeah, I knew it was hot. <laughs> and I remember pulling off in the taxi, and that, the, the taxi then t it went via, went on Airline Highway, um, which was just as, could be anywhere in America, just ugly gas stations and, right. and office blocks. And uh, I was looking out the window in dismay, thinking, oh, God. This doesn't look anything like it. Um, and <laughs> thinking, oh, that's, I've made a horrible mistake. This didn't look like anything like I imagined New Orleans to look, and of course it doesn't, still doesn't. But um, then at one point you pull off onto Tulane, and then you're on Carrollton Avenue, and there was a streetcar and palm trees. And I didn't expect, I don't know what I was thinking, but I'd never seen a palm tree in my life. I'd seen pictures of palm trees, right. but I'd never actually seen a palm tree. And then that was it. And then I was suddenly, I was in New Orleans. At that minute, when, that, when the car made that turn, I was in the actual city of New Orleans. And it was the most beautiful thing. It was nighttime. And just looked gorgeous. And the whole thing was a bit of a dream, really. And then you got a job working as a painter at uh, Maple Leaf Bar or do some painting there? Well, Fiona, the girl that worked at the bar, um, and her friends all kind of took me under their wing. They all thought it was funny that I should have just showed up without a, without a clue, really. And um, 
the owner of the bar. And so I spent my daytime sort of hanging out in the bar because they would sneak me a few drinks and whatever, free, free beers. And then a few days later, my mate turned up, the guy, my friend from school, because right. he'd done the same thing. He'd got a DHL flight <laughs> and he showed up and it was the two of us. And then uh, so somebody at the bar said, well, you can come stay with me. I need, I've got a spare room. And, um, and then the owner of the bar said, what are you, you know, what on earth are you doing? How much, do you need a job? Have you got any money? I said, no, we haven't got any money. We need, do we need a job? He said, all right, well, do you want to, I'll give you a job. You've got to, in the back of the bar, there's a sort of a patio, which is a mess. It's just full of wild banana trees and um, the banana trees have got to go. So if you want, you've got a couple of days work, you can um, dig up the banana trees. And so we did that. And then they said, okay, well, um, I'll find some other stuff for you if you like. And then he said, do you want to paint the bar? The bar needs, hasn't had a paint job in 10 years. Can you paint? And we both said, yeah, we've never painted anything <laughs> in our lives other than with a, can, with a paintbrush and a canvas at art college. But we both said, oh, yeah, we can paint. So he took us out and we bought some ladders, a couple of electric sanders. He picked out some coloured paint, a bunch of brushes, and we were painters. And the deal was we could work whatever hours we wanted, up to us, we got paid $5 an hour, and we get paid at the end of each day out of the till at the bar. And we got free drink while we worked, half-price drink in the evenings, and we could get in to see all the bands for nothing. He said, how's that sound? And I was just like, I died and gone to heaven. <laughs> it was just my dream. It was the perfect thing. And so we started painting the bar, and we were absolutely useless. We'd work for two or three hours every day, and just again, then get money out of the till, 15, 20 bucks, and that was enough to get a sandwich. And we got free booze, and we go and hang out in the bar and go and see, see, hear the bands every night. And we wake up the next morning with a hangover. Uh, well, not much of a hangover because we were kids, you don't, you're sort of indestructible. <laughs> but we'd wake up and having spent all our money, and we go back and work for another three or four hours uh, to get enough money to get a, to eat. And whatever we needed to do. And that's how we lived day to day. And the job, it took us six months to paint the bar. <laughs> Should have taken us two weeks. It took six months. But um, the bar at that time was uh, was very popular with construction workers. They'd all come there after they got off work. And it was a boom town at that time, New Orleans. It was, it was the oil boom. So um, there was a lot of cash. Uh, and it was a party, a big bar, you know, a whole very amazing party atmosphere. And so all the construction workers would get off work and um, and quite often they, with their beers, they'd come out into the street to watch me and Dan on ladders covered in paint, spilling paint everywhere, <laughs> smoking joints and drinking beers at the top of a ladder and holding a gallon <laughs> of paint and a paintbrush and, like, telling each other jokes, laughing our heads off. We were just... It was just a great party. And I think the owner of the bar realised how useless we were, but he sort of realised we'd become something of an attraction at the bar because <laughs> <laughs> they'd all come out and lean on the trucks just watching us and they'd all just, like, fall about laughing <laughs> at these two idiot 18-year-olds. It's like Laurel and Hardy, you know, I think. Um, so it worked. What was happening to your music career at this point or your pursuit of a music career? I was just listening. Okay. I didn't feel ready, and I was I was terrible. I mean, I really want I not wanted nothing more than to get up on stage and play guitar, and but I was too shy to ask anybody. 
Um, and I, I played every. I was playing every day at home and buying records and going out every night to hear music, and um, and listening and learning and trying to figure it out. Um, but there was a piano at the bar, and usually we'd roll in before we go in there before the bar opened, and we could uh, we didn't have a key or anything, but we could climb over the gate and get inside. And and we had the key to where the inside. You know, you could just walk in the back. It wasn't locked in the back. You just walk into where the storeroom was and get the paint and the ladders and the brushes, and get a beer. We could go behind the bar and help ourselves to drink because we got f free drink. Um, smoke a joint. I go and sit at the piano and play for half an hour. Um, and then eventually, gradually, we'd wind our way towards the ladders and then we'd <laughs> eventually start painting. But it always starts off with a bit of some music and a few beers and put the jukebox on. And it was just me and him in the bar, the whole bar to ourselves. And um, sometimes it would take a little bit too long doing that. And the, 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 you'd hear a key in the front of the door and the, and the bar manager would come in and look over and just... Because he was the one who actually had to pay us out at the till at the end of every night. <laughs> and we were taking all the profits, you know. So the owner didn't really care. He thought it was funny. But the manager had felt that like he should be a bit more businesslike. And he would get very annoyed to come in. And when I was supposed to be up on a ladder painting, I'd be playing the bar with a joint hanging out of my mouth, drinking a beer. <laughs> and again, he'd tell me off because I was, you know, he was a school teacher and I was like a naughty pupil. That was the sort of relationship. So we didn't like him very much. And I don't think he liked us particularly. He thought it was just ridiculous. But um, what was he playing like at that point? I could play like, you know. Pretty basic kind of rumbas and boogies and whatever. Um, but the turning point, I guess the turning point for me was um, we'd started work late. Sometimes at like the end of the month when the rent was due or the phone, we'd call home and run up these huge phone bills <laughs> calling, calling our parents in England and never save money. And we'd get to the end of the month or the bill would come and then there was a sudden furious effort to put the hours in to, to make the money up so we'd be working like absurd hours we'd still be up painting in the dark after dark <laughs> and uh, and of course they all thought that was absolutely hilarious as well couldn't see anything we're up a ladder with paintbrush and it's, it's like nine o'clock at night um and there was one time when i was coming in we packed up the ladders and there were already people coming in to see um, the Tuesday night act, which was always James Booker, the pianist, right. and they were already people take their to put they mostly it was the dance floor, but on Tuesday nights they put seats out because it was a listening crowd, and people were taking their seats, and I was walking in front of them because the cupboard where we put the paints was just on the side of the stage, and um, covered in green paint, and he came over very agitated and said, look. Get cleaned up, get all that paint off you quickly, because all these people are expecting James Booker to start playing, and he hasn't showed up. So uh, I want you to get get all that paint off you, and just get up on the piano and just start playing until he gets here. Make yourself useful for a change. <laughs> and so, um, so that's what I did, and they all kind of dug it. And I can't remember if Booker showed up or not, but that was actually my first piano gig. Was covering for James Booker. Wow, I mean that's quite 
quite a um, person to replace. I mean, he would be one of the greats on the piano. He's acknowledged now as probably being the best piano player that ever came out of New Orleans. And I saw him every... He, was, he would hang out at the bar. I'd see him every day, pretty much. He'd, I'd be on a paint... I'd be painting on the ladder, <laughs> painting the front, and he would just be killing time in the bar because they gave him free drinks, and he would just sit down at the piano and play. There'd be nobody else there, just me and him, basically. Could I ask uh, you what, um, what you might have learned from watching him play? Well, I, my, the way I learned music was, as I say, I wasn't a good student, but in any kind of academic sense. And if I could turn the clock back, I would... I was thinking about this yesterday. God, all the things I wish I'd done, wish I'd asked him, because I could probably just could have sidled up and said, hey, can you show me this? I just never did. Right. But he was always around, and he wasn't... No one had ever heard of James Bond. It wasn't like he was... Now he's, you know, <laughs> he's a legend. Yeah. But at the time, he was just the guy that played on Tuesday nights, and he was a bit of an oddball. But um, I didn't, a lot of the stuff he did, I didn't really dig. But I guess it's, you know, like I said, I didn't, I've never really been one of these students that tries to learn exactly how he played everything because I don't think there's any point in doing that. The way you learn, I think, if you can have any individual voice of your own, is to absorb it almost through the pores of your skin just repeatedly until it gets in there and then informs what you do. So one thing, one kind of New Orleans um, R&B kind of pattern is something... Like this, and I'll just play it for you. But it's basically what I learnt from hearing Booker over and over again was this kind of groove. That kind of groove, you know, what we call funk, right. New Orleans funk, basically. He would have played it more like... Because he played big tenths in the left hand, which, that's a tenth. But that's a struggle for me. His hands were much, much bigger than mine. And so there's just some things I physically cannot do. I know I would know how to do them if I had bigger hands. But So we, so you have to kind of work around and work what work out what uh, suits your style but I liked his the way he played the blues and those those ballads he would play he would use those tents again he would use these passing chords that Those kind of changes. When when you played that one night at the Maple Leaf Bar, did that open up doors for you? Like, were you able to play there more often, or how did your music career start in New Orleans? No, it didn't open up any doors really. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe if I'd been uh, more of a hustler, uh, it could have done. But I was terrible at that. As I say, I was really terrible at that, and I didn't consider myself a piano player. I was still, a, I thought of myself as a guitar player. And I picked up, you know, there was a band called the Night Riders that I joined, and they, we would play at the Maple Leaf, but they were doing kind of a sleep at the wheel, kind of Texas swing sort of stuff. Right. Um, so I just grabbed whatever I could. Got, you know, anytime there was a piano there, I'd just jump on the piano and play. But um, I was there for nearly two years, and really that was just learning. 
I didn't really do much gigging at all. And as I say, if I was a better hustler, I probably could have done all sorts of stuff, but I didn't. Um, and I had to leave, and I went back to England. And when I went to England, the hustle, uh, the hustle kind of um, ability kind of kicked in. And I did. I really sort of embraced it. And I was full of New Orleans. I mean, I just I was like a battery bursting with all this New Orleans energy. And um, I looked in the music papers, or the listings paper, and there was a band advertised playing New Orleans um, Professor Longhair style piano. I thought, well, that's interesting. At a pub called the Hare and Hounds in Upper Street in North London. And so I went along, and that was about a week after I got back. I had to leave because my visa had expired. Right. And so instead of going straight back to England, I went to Jamaica and then got a plane from Jamaica and got home. And then within a few days, I went to see, went to this pub to see this band. Someone else had said they were really good, called Diz and the Doormen. And um, this sounded really interesting to me. And I got there early and got talking to this guy at the bar and found that he was Diz, the piano player. And um, I said, yeah, I just got... I said, oh, you, you play New Orleans music? And he said, yeah. And I'm still a kid, you know. Right. But I said, do you, do you like James Booker? And he looked at me and said, how do you know about James Booker? And he was crazy about James Booker. And I told him, I was just I was sitting in the bar chatting to him like two, you know, a couple of weeks before. And that kind of piqued his curiosity and we talked a bit. And so I, you know, he, I told him I was a piano player. And uh, I think he was just curious, so he... He, he said, you want to sit in and play a tune? So I said, yeah, I'd love to. And I thought that was my big break, you know. And so I got up and played a tune and I rocked the house. I got a house, it was great. And um, so I went along to his next gig and he invited me to sit in on that. Uh, very kind of him because, um, you know, it was his gig. Yeah. He was out there trying to make it and he let me sit in. And I was giving it everything I got. I only had two tunes to two tunes to play, and I would um, handle my business. You know, this guy was good. I've been waiting for two years, waiting for an opportunity like this. But it was in you know, in London rather than New Orleans. And the owner of the bar said, "I need someone to someone. To, I've had a cancellation. Can you play next week?" And I said, "Well, I haven't got a band." He said, "Well, use Diz's band. I'll I'll sort it out." So he he. Hired them and I showed up and played. I didn't have any material rehearsed, but um, that then started becoming a regular thing. And then I, then I started get. I got hired by my uncle to go and play in his band, and so I was playing in two bands, and um, that was it. I was off to the races. Wow. I started that. That's how I learned. That's where I learned how to hustle a gig, how to get paid at the end of the night, how to plug in the PA system, how to hire musicians. Um, negotiate a rate with them and so that's kind of how I got started and was the goal always to go back to New Orleans yeah it was really I mean I did that for about about a year I suppose um, and in the middle of the year I, I went back to New Orleans for the jazz festival and got um, hired to play at the Maple Leaf and um as a proper gig, you know, which right. I'd never done before. And people really dug it. And um, I, I went back to England from that. It was like a little two-week 
trip back to New Orleans. I had to leave and go back to England. And I, one night I was playing in a pub in South London and it was pouring with rain outside. There was hardly anybody in the pub. And um, I was playing Do You Know What It Means to Miss New Orleans? And it was about a month before Carnival. And at the end of the night, I said, ah, that's it. I've had enough of this. I'm going back. And so I just uh, bought a flight and just went back to New Orleans. And um, that was it. Are you thinking at this point that you're a guitar player or a piano player? By this point, I was a piano player. The penny had dropped, and I'd, I'd kind of figured out that there were loads of really good guitar players, even though I felt I was better than most of them. I was a good guitar player. But um, I could see that it was a crowded field, and my interest wasn't in the guitar. I'd played guitar for a long time by that point, and it was clear to me I had two directions to go as a guitar player if I was going to keep, keep progressing at any kind of pace. And one was... Because you get more dexterous and you get, you know, you, you get quicker and faster. And a lot of the blue stuff I really liked was quite primitive. Right. And it's kind of, it's a dishonest to fake not being able to play very well if you can actually play really well, just <laughs> in order to sound like a, like a primitive blues guitar player. And I didn't like, at that point, you know, there have been guitar players who'd, come up through the blues, like Alvin Lee or Robin Trower, these English blues guitar players, who and Eric Clapton, who just got fast. You know, the better they got, it meant the faster they got, and that's what everyone was wowed by, right. with the sort of flurries and lots and lots of notes. And, and I could see that that was going nowhere. And I wasn't really interested in pursuing jazz guitar, because I just didn't like jazz fusion. And there wasn't jazz guitar in New Orleans music, and I wasn't a huge fan of traditional New Orleans jazz particularly. I liked it because I'd grown up around it, but uh, it was the piano, that was the thing. There was hard, no one could play. That's the thing that blew me away about New Orleans. There was, I thought there'd be hundreds of piano players everywhere, all really brilliant. There were hardly any. Wow. No, young no youngsters coming up playing. Um, it was old, just old guys. And in New Orleans, Dr. John didn't, had left New Orleans. Alan Toussaint rarely did gigs. It was James Booker and Fats Domino. But, I mean, as far as the only person I had really access to I could go and see was James Booker. And um, while I was in that period in England, um, Dr. John suddenly arrived and was going to do... And this was amazing. He hadn't played... He'd only ever played in England once before, I think, and that had been... 10 years previously, which seemed like ancient history to me. Um, but whoever the promoter was, it was Chris Barber's promoter, brought Dr. John over, and they hired Diz and the Doorman to be his backing band. Wow. And, um, and so I ended up getting the gig playing guitar. They hired me to play guitar. And so I was playing guitar in, um, with Dr. behind Dr. John, and we had a rehearsal, and then the, the sound check... We did a BBC session, <laughs> and then everybody else had split, and it was just me and Mac, Reb, Dr. John, Mac Rebenack. Yeah. And um, I said, do you want to smoke a joint? He said, yeah, all right. And so we smoked a joint. And, um, and he started playing. He sat down at the piano and went... You give me pneumonia. He started messing around. There's a you know, song called You Give Me Fever. He was yeah, singing yeah. You Give Me Pneumonia. And I knew that. That was by Little Willie John. I loved Little Willie John. I said, man, 
you'd like Little Willie John? He said, how the fuck do you know about Little Willie John? And I said, oh, well, I like this one here. And he went, yo, you're a sweetheart. And he loved, I didn't know, he loved Little Willie John, and that was one of his favorite tunes. And he said, man, he said, All right, I didn't know you could play the piano. He said, all right, I'm, tonight on the gig, I'm going to play guitar and you play piano. <laughs> Wow. So we did. We switched round. He was my idol. I couldn't believe I was playing with but playing piano in Dr. John's band while he played guitar. So he played guitar on something you got and some other funk thing and I played piano. Um and then shortly after that I moved that's when I moved back to New Orleans. And when I got back to New Orleans that time I was like, Okay, now I had some confidence that I kinda knew what I was doing. And so I I really hustled at that time and I got James Booker had died in uh, the, in the intervening year and a half of me being in England. He he'd passed away, right. and so there was nobody playing that stuff anymore. Not playing piano and singing. There were some good piano players, but not people that played and sang and not that were knowledgeable about that stuff. So um, so they gave me James Booker's old Tuesday night gig at the Maple Leaf. I started doing that every Tuesday, and then. The guy that booked Tipitina's I'd met before. He was really young um, and lived. his sister lived around the block from the Maple Leaf and he came in and heard me playing piano and said, do you want to do, do you want to play, come play on Monday nights? That's Professor Longhair's old regular night. So I got Professor Longhair's old gig and I got James Booker's old gig and then I got a gig at the, somehow I landed a gig at the Absinthe Bar on Bourbon Street, which was, used to be the regular gig for some famous New Orleans piano players back in the day, Fats Pichon and a guy called Archibald. So I had those three gigs, and then um, and then I got asked to play a session for a blues singer called Sam McLean. So it's good, you know, when you start doing this thing, one, leads, one thing leads to another. So I ended up getting hired, starting to get hired to put bands together myself uh, to open up some shows at Tipitina's. And so I started hiring the old guys to come play with me. And then they got me in the door to come do some gigs with them. And they were backing up guys like Earl King and Snooks Eaglin. Wow. And Jesse Hill. So I ended up getting being the kind of the go-to piano player for, for the um, R&B guys who were my idols. The reason I'd gone to New Orleans in the first place. And they became my friends. So I would then gig and tour with Johnny Adams and Walter Washington and... Earl King, Ernie Cado, um, Jesse Hill, Doo-Poo-Poo-Doo. So I was um, going to ask you if, if it was difficult to get accepted into the New Orleans music scene, but it doesn't sound like it was. Am I correct to assume that? They, yeah, it was very easy. Um, well, I said it was easy. I, there was um, supply and demand. There was a, <laughs> needed someone that could play that style of piano, and I really, that's what I'd been doing for years was just exactly that so I just I was I guess I was the perfect candidate and also I was very cheap <laughs> okay so the other thing that happened not only did you get to play with some of your heroes but you got to join some big name artists on tour like Taj Mahal and Bonnie Raitt how does that happen like how do you go from establishing yourself in New Orleans and, and getting a lot of gigs and playing with a lot of people to now going to the next step which is touring and and playing with big name acts. Well, 
You know, there's an old saying here in New Orleans, the road to success is the I-10 West. It was kind of drilled into me that if you wanted to do, have any chance of succeeding or taking this seriously, get out of New Orleans. Don't stay in New Orleans, whatever you do. That was the wisdom. The words of wisdom. New Orleans was a poor, remote, backwards city, trapped in the past, overlooked, and there was no recording scene. No one made records in New Orleans. Um, and I kind of refused to accept that. But then an odd thing happened one night. I was started touring and doing gigs with a blues guitarist in town called John Mooney. And I came home from a gig. We played in Galveston. We played in Houston and then did a gig in Galveston the next day and then drove and got back home to New Orleans late. It's like a six-hour drive. Got in until sort of two o'clock in the morning. And my house got broken into. I was woken up by intruders with shotguns and I was almost killed. Yikes. And um, the next day I was leaving to go to Europe to do some kind of... By this time, I was starting to get, to get, um, I was starting to get gigs in, in Europe. Um, As a solo artist, starting off solo, yeah. Okay. And then I started um, bringing musicians from New Orleans, or musicians from London. Um, anyway, long story short, I was in New York the next day, trembling, still freaked out by this whole thing. Um, being held up at gunpoint. Yeah. And because um, New Orleans is a dangerous city. Yeah. Uh, but um, I would always break the journey and stay with a friend because New York was thrilling to me. I love New York. Um, and he said, hey, there's an apartment going. You want this? There's a really great apartment. It's really cheap. Someone's going to, if you want it, you can have it, but you could jump on it. I had $600 in my pocket and I said, hey, that, was, that was the rent. I said, take it. I'm, I'm in. Um, my, so I left to go to Europe, and when I came back from Europe, I had the front door key to an apartment in New York, and I couldn't even remember what the address was. <laughs> I had to get the taxi to drive around the block about three times. So I, I think, think that I, could, I couldn't. I'd lost a piece of paper with the address, but the keys worked. And, <laughs> and um, so I was living in New York, and so I had to hustle in New York because I had no money, and I'm living in New York. I kept my place in New Orleans, and my roommate in New Orleans stayed there. Um, so that was that was kind of an easy move, and so I started hustling, and I got gigs in New York, and um, I met a record producer, an English record producer called John Porter. And long story short, um, he dug my stuff. I'd made a record by that point. I cut a record in New Orleans with some of the guys from the Meters and um, the Paul and Brass Band. And, um, and he'd, I gave him a copy of that, and he really dug it. And uh, shortly around that time, I got kicked out of the country. I'd overstayed my visa, and um, they caught up with me, and I had to leave. And so I was um, sent back to England. And I went, uh, started hustling. I got gigs, some gigs in Australia. I went traveling in China and Cuba, and just um, was just on the move, basically. Um, and I got a message from him saying, I've played some of your songs. I got a deal with a local studio and I would cut, write songs and demo them and send them to him. John Porter is his name, very well-respected record producer. And he called me one day and said, Taj, I played with some of your songs to Taj Mahal. 
I'm about to produce a record on Taj. Do you mind if he if he does a couple of your songs? I was over the moon. And then he called back and said, well, yeah, he wants to cut your songs, but he wants to know if you can come play on them. And I said, well, I'd love to, but I can't get back in the States. And he said, well, I'll help you with that. And so I got a visa to go back. And then I went to L.A. for the first time and um, was in the studio with Taj Mahal, who was one of my idols. And, um, and Bonnie Raitt was the guest artist on a song. So she came in. That's how I met Bonnie. Wow. And then... Um, and... Um, I played with Taj for a couple of years. We did a couple of records. He did some of my songs, and that was really great. And then I got a call from Bonnie asking if I'd come and join her band. So I joined her band and did that for 10 years, which was a great experience. But um, in hindsight, I shouldn't have done it for so long, really, because uh, I kind of just vanished off the map. I just became the sideman in somebody else's band. Um, but it's good for me musically. It's good to be a sideman. I've always been a sideman and a band leader at the same time, and it's, it's you know, what you do as a sideman informs you, it teaches you what to do as a band leader, and being a band leader uh, tells you what a band leader wants out of the, out of his sidemen. So it's good all round if you're an all round musician. And, and so, your goal was always to do both. Or did you think I wanted to be a solo artist? Not solo, but I want to be the main act. I, I like doing both, really. I like I like being a musician's musician. I think it's good, hones your chops and skills. It's always good to be put in a situation. If you just do what you do, then you do what's easy. Right. Uh, if you do, if you, I learned being a sideman in Walter Washington's band with Johnny Adams and guys like that, um, to be pulled out of my comfort zone and to have to really think on my feet and play in keys that are not good piano keys and learn how to do that. Uh, yeah, it's good for you. It's good for your musicianship. And it teaches you the business. You know, if you, some guys, some of the guys I worked for were not good band leaders, great musicians and nice guys, but their, their business was all over the place. And as a sideman, that's no good to you. So you learn not what not to do as well as what to do. So, um, yeah, I'm at a point now where I'm pretty happy doing my stuff I don't really have a desire necessarily. I mean, I get uh, occasionally get hired to do sessions. I moved back to New Orleans from New York, and um, there's just not much of a recording industry here. But in the last few years, I've just basically been doing what I like. I've paid my dues doing all that other stuff. I'm ready just to have some fun and do my stuff. What do you think it is about you that had all these opportunities come your way? Like, what is it about you or your playing that... Taj thought I need to have him in my band or Bonnie thought I need to have him in my band I guess I did my homework right you know, <laughs> put in a lot of hours and um, music was always always the thing and I think um, you know being being given access to this great musical information when I was little when I was young coming up I kind of realized at some point if I'm ever going to be taken seriously doing this I've got to get out of England and and make it do it in the States um, and if I'm going to be a New Orleans musician if I'm going to be a real New Orleans musician so just an impersonator then I've got to go be a New Orleans musician you've got to come live in New Orleans drink the water eat the food live the life and um, do it properly and um, 
and do all the extra work. You know, I've worked really, really hard at this, putting in the hours when nobody else is around, just playing for hours, learning stuff, researching, reading, asking lots of questions, getting background, developing, having an interest in more than just one area of music, all the, you know, learning about other styles. Um, but at the same time, with a view to amassing sufficient information to give me to, to sort of make building blocks that would ultimately will end up being something that's distinctive to me hopefully i think i'm still in still on uh, working on that you know do you remember a time when you thought okay now i am a new orleans musician <laughs> no not really i guess now, some a few weeks ago, I went to the funeral of Dave Bartholomew. Mm -hmm. Dave Bartholomew was the band leader mm -hmm. for Fats Domino, and was responsible for a lot of the great R&B records that came out of the city in the 40s and 50s. He lived to the age of 100, and I went to his funeral a few months ago, or a year ago now, actually, and walked into the church, and um, took, sat down one of the pews, and then in the back there was music going on the choir and there was a whole all the old musicians were kind of congregated in the back and a couple of them spotted me and sort of beckoned to me said come what are you doing sitting over there you're supposed to come over and sit here with us and i sat down with the old guys he said what are you doing over there you're one of us now you're supposed to sit here wow. <laughs> and, he, and he laughed so i thought it was kind of very welcoming uh, older generation black musicians from new orleans um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I guess it's called paying your dues, but right. I've been here most of my life. I've, I came here when I was a kid and I'm still here and I've been here for almost 40 years. It's an so, extraordinary story. Well, I was extraordinarily lucky because it could have gone very horribly wrong. Um, I landed on my feet, but I think, you know, you make your own luck. Mm -hmm. Or oh, the work, <clears throat> the work you do behind closed doors um, means that if that you know luck comes into everybody's life, it's just a matter of whether you're have done, uh, you're sufficiently prepared to take advantage of it when it does. And I've always been quite. I've, I think it's good to have a sense of humility as a musician. I think uh, if you can be really good at what you do, but be quite. Um, not you know, and like I was talking about that, I've referred to the hustle thing quite a lot. <clears throat> I never really liked pushy musicians. I didn't. Well, I really never, never had any respect for musicians who were, would, would, would hustle their way onto the stage and then not be able to handle their business. Right. I always thought it'd be much better to be the other way around, to actually have someone kind of coax you on the stage and then have everybody be surprised by actually then suddenly being the best player on the stage. Now that, that I'd much rather do it that way around. But it's, it's a kind of a long, it's a long, the long way of doing it. But ultimately, it gets you a lot more respect, I think. And I, that's what I really wanted from. That to me was the prize, would be if I could uh, get respect from from um, the musicians here, just for being able to play the stuff well and for having done the work, you know, not for anything else really. Well, you've certainly done that. Well, try to, you know. I mean, I don't. Yeah. Well, the degree to which you succeed or not as a musician is something that different people measure in, in different ways. But I think if you can put a roof over your head 
and um, lo love what you do, then that's uh, certainly a measure of success. I'm never going to get rich or famous doing this, but um, I'll be able to do it till the day I drop, probably. And that's uh, and I'm play I've never had to play music I didn't like. I've never had to do a gig I didn't like. Um, and there's also a thing of passing the torch on, you know. The are, are there are there young keyboard players who sing in New Orleans now, or is that still something that's lacking down there? Well, you know, I kind of came at the tail end of the R and B scene. I played with the with the guys that invented that stuff, and that's who I learned from. Right, and um, that's the only way you could learn it then. Um, I think now there's all sorts of amazing... I mean, you can go on YouTube and type in any obscure record, the New Orleans record. I typed in the Larry Darnell record yesterday that I'd never heard before. <laughs> I mean, for me, I had to get on a plane, leave my home, leave my family, say goodbye to my mum and dad, travel halfway around the world, take a huge, huge risk but so that I could walk into Jim Russell's record shop and say I'd like a copy of... Breaking Up is Hard to Do by Jiving Gene and the Jokers and walk out with the record and then go mm -hmm. home and learn to play it. And then at a bar, I sit at the bar and ask Earl King about Guitar Slim or Huey Piano Smith. That's one way, that was, the, I was lucky to have that way of learning. There's, I think there's lots of talented musicians who now are developing a love for New Orleans music and they can learn from records on YouTube whether they're in Australia right. or China or whoever, wherever. And I'm sure they'll learn to play the right notes and do it. But there's a thing that's somehow missing, which is the part that I knew early on was really crucial, which is you've got to come here, as I said, and be play it from the inside out instead of be looking from the outside in. Because uh, that's what informs your music and makes the difference between you being a cop, someone that just copies old stuff, and someone that's absorbed all the information and that now is adding to the thing. I mean, that sounds like a pretentious thing to say. I'm not suggesting that I'm adding to the oeuvre, but that's what I'm trying to do. Whether I succeed or not, it's for somebody else to judge ultimately, but that's not the point. I just have fun doing it, and it keeps me, uh, keeps me busy. That's kind of all I think about, really. So that's what I'm doing. Well, it's... it's you're somebody I have never actually met or seen, but I have been a fan of yours for a oh, long thank time, you. and I really appreciate you doing this. Can I just ask you mm -hmm. one last question? You have a new thing called, you're involved in a thing called Patreon, or is it Patreon? Yes, I heard about this fairly recently, and it's modeled on the old, the very ancient idea of, you know, patrons of the arts um, in the days of the Medici, painters and musicians, um, needed patrons in order sort of, and they would commission pieces of work right. and allow the musicians give them circumstances in which they could pursue their endeavours and so recently I stumbled across this um, new idea which has kind of grown out of I suppose the, the, the um, crowdfunding concept on the internet where, which I utilised for right. my last record uh, as a way to raise money because I've never had any luck getting record deals from record companies the stuff I do isn't considered very commercial and so you know I never had any uh, unrealistic aspirations in that department it's always going to be a struggle New Orleans music's uh, 
respected, but it's kind of on the periphery of things. So um, the crowdfunding thing I thought was interesting, but the Patreon thing is a different, a, a similar principle. But basically, people who love what you do can join a fan club essentially um, and pay a monthly membership. Um, and you have different tiers of membership, so it can be a $5 tier or $10 or $20 tier. And then every month, uh, if you can build up enough of your fans, chipping, paying in a little bit every month, it provides you with um, a, not just a monthly stipend, but also a, a, um, a club of real dedicated fans, people who really like what you do. And... Um, I'm looking to grow it to the point where I can actually... I'll still make records and still go out and do gigs, but there'll be some music that I make just for them. And um, and it's almost like being commissioned for pieces of work. And I have a studio that I've assembled over the years from saving up my money from these little gigs. And I've got great friends here, new ones who are great musicians. And I'm going to be able to make music write songs, record them, and then I have a ready-made audience that are paying me a monthly stipend, whether it's $5 or 10 bucks, or, you know, whatever. And it's a fantastic way that the internet is um, allowing me to generate, produce music and, and just send it straight to the fans without there, be, out there being any of this big... Uh, machine is it music business industry thing which has been in such flux and has always been grossly inefficient mm -hmm. and has all has never served um the likes of me people who are involved in and who aren't doing top 40 records or going for any of that kind of stuff it's a niche market what i do but if there's one guy in poland that likes it who pays 20 bucks a month and then there's a guy in singapore and a few people in Germany and a whole bunch of people in England and people all over the states and they all send in money. That means um, I've got the wherewithal to call my guys and say, hey man, come make a session for me. I can pay you. Let's make a. I've written a song. Let's cut it. And there are some, you know, and they also, there's lots of rough demos and um, sketches and things that I do that I would never put out as albums. But I kind of dig more than the finished records themselves. But the fans would be really curious to hear that stuff. So, um, you know, uh, that's great, and they can get to the site through your site, correct? No, you just go to patreon.com and then there's, okay. and there's a little thing where you type to a search, you type in my name, and it comes up, and it's very easy to join. And um, so, recently, I made available to the fans the first demo of a song I wrote years ago called Moonburn. So, the cassette demo, which no one else has ever heard, but which I really like, it's really raw. <laughs> right. So I did it when I was living up in New York, so it's from about 20 years ago. Um, and then subsequent, a few live versions and rehearsal versions and alternative takes from the record that didn't get released. So it's all that kind of stuff, which I think if you... If I, I mean, I love Johnny Guitar Watson, man. If, if Johnny Watson was still alive and had a Patreon site, I'd be gobbling up all the demo tapes, the sketches, and all the <laughs> background stuff, because that's, well, that's the stuff I want to really hear. You know, if I'm a fan, I want to hear... Yeah, yeah. Not just the finished thing. I want to hear to see the work that leads up to it and, and how it all gets put together. So yeah, so that so it's great. We've had uh, it's only been up for six weeks and we have um, nearly two hundred people already that have signed up. Wow! And they're all very enthusiastic. 
and and it's perfect in this current uh, climate where I have no gigs and no tours like all musicians. I had all my work for a whole year got cancelled. Um, yeah. So I've been doing a a live stream with a tip jar. I've seen those. And called the Quarantini Hour, which is fun. But that's uh, but in the meantime, I'm in here working on stuff and making a new record, so people will be able to hear the outtakes, the rehearsal tapes, the you know different versions. And um, yeah, so that's kind of very exciting for me as a musician, especially someone. I, I'm lucky. I get I play all the instruments. I've learned to play all the instruments because uh, that's what I need to be able to do to be a good band leader to show my guys how I want the parts to be played. I need to be able to pick up the bass and say this is how this bit goes. And then I need to be able to sit behind the drums and say, I want you to play this groove like this. That's a very important part of being a good band leader if you're a songwriter and an arranger. Right. Um, and so I, I'm kind of self-sufficient. So, uh, I mean, I've made records where I played everything. So I have here, I'm sitting here right now, I've got my B3 organ, the Fender Rhodes piano, I've got guitars hanging on the wall, the Pro Tools. So I've got a whole studio, I'm a one-man, one-stop shop. <laughs> yeah, so. and I've seen I've seen some of your Facebook stuff, your your lessons on Saturday. Not that I play piano or anything, but uh, you, you do you, you do a great video, and it's quite entertaining and informational. Well, the piano the piano thing is it's like piano lessons for beginners. I think when we went into lockdown, the a lot of people who are going to be thinking, right, what can I do? I mean, you see on the news about how the home improvement centres are doing roaring trade because everybody's fixing those shelves that they never got round to doing or <laughs> painting the shed. Right. And if there's got to be hundreds of people out there who have a piano or a keyboard that said, one day I'm going to learn to play a tune. And so, um, so I decided to start doing a half an hour piano lesson every week, every Saturday at um, noon in New Orleans, called One Finger at a Time. So... And playing, you know, the stuff I learned when I was learning to play, the stuff I taught myself. So um, a lot of uh, a lot of enthusiasm for that. And the quarantine hour on Tuesdays is a chance for people to call in and ask questions about songs and talk about the music. It's not really a gig. It's more a chance to give people a glimpse under the hood of how the songs are put together or how the styles mm -hmm. are put together. And obviously, there's lots of questions about anecdotal stuff as well questions about Earl King yeah well it's interesting yeah for sure thank you so much for spending this time with me it's, it's a real thrill you're very welcome have a great day cheers bye now. bye